1: I grew up uh, in two places. My childhood was in central New York State near Syracuse, New York. When I was 13, my family moved to the suburbs of Boston. And that was this kind of massive, traumatic, (laughs) but also extremely, for me, just unbelievably fruitful move. Kind of everything changed in my life at age 13.
0: Andy Crouch is a writer, a speaker, and a musician. For more than 10 years, he was an editor at Christianity Today, where he served as an executive editor from 2012 to 2016. He's a leading voice and thinker amongst evangelicals, exploring how culture is shaped, how Christians might participate in the world around us, and in his most recent books, The Dynamics of Power and Weakness.
1: When we moved and I, I kind of fell in kind of crazy and, you know, suburban New England, this is in the 1980s, is a very secular environment, and yet in my high school and in, in the church that we landed in, there was actually this amazing little community of, of Christians. And... For me, it felt very much like I was coming into something completely new at that point and something very different from my family. I think my teenage rebellion was to become a Christian. Wow.
0: <laughs> That's a different take. Yeah, it's a so different for trajectory. For sure. There's a pine waffler sitting on a
1: hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he on, it seems to the leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings, and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know
0: From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and my guest today is Andy Crouch. And while it's our last interview for this season, it's not our last episode. My conversation with Andy covered a lot of ground, and we couldn't bear to leave it on the cutting room floor. So today is just part one of a two-part episode exploring Andy's story and his work so stay with us
1: now if she, sings, a clear. she puts a tree.
0: When you went off to school growing up, what did you think you were going to go and do?
1: Well, I'd been very influenced by a little youth ministry that found this group of Christian kids in our school, and there was no one investing in us in any way. So these guys would come and lead a Bible study for us at 6 a.m. on Thursday mornings, uh, about a block from the high school. And amazingly, we had kids showing up for this. All the folks who led it had, had been to pretty conservative seminaries, and so they all had studied Greek. And they would bring their Greek New Testament, the guys who were leading this study. And I thought, oh, if I could read Greek, then I would really be godly, right? So the, I decided The to, real Bible. The real yeah. Bible, yeah. right? The Bible that Jesus used. So <laughs> I went off to Cornell and started majoring in classics and studying Greek. And... <laughs> Then when you actually learn Greek, you realize the Bible is written in really bad Greek. Like Mark clearly is not a native speaker of Greek. His Greek is terrible. And you also find out that reading Greek does not in any way make you more spiritual. (laughs) And also that our translations are really good. When Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's actually what it says in the Greek. The difficulty there is not in translation. It's in what Jesus actually said. I actually came to love Greek language and literature, and I appreciate the Greek New Testament as well. But you just realize the things that I thought I was going to do ended up being totally different. (laughs) But I did have a sense of call, not really to ministry exactly as much as just to serve the kingdom of God. I had a very unusually positive experience of Christian community in high school and just had seen friends come to faith, seen the kind of depth of love and relationship that's possible in that setting. And I just knew I wanted to be part of that, but without necessarily a lot of specificity, which is why maybe my life has been so, (laughs) such a mess. big role in my whole life. My mother is a a trained musician, a classical pianist, and a piano teacher when I was growing up, and some of my earliest memories are lying under the piano as my mom practiced Chopin or Scriabin or whatever, (laughs) and then I studied piano, but it took a turn in college. I mean, I loved music, I loved making music of all kinds, but through some really remarkable gifts of relationship, I ended up playing in a black church as the pianist for the junior choir which was uh, everyone under the age of 55. (laughs) The senior choir was the older folks, and then there was the junior choir, and they needed a piano player. And I was like, well, you might have noticed I'm white. I, I don't really know black gospel. And they said, no, we'll teach you. And this little black church, St. James's Amizana Church in Ithaca, New York, became just one of the most pivotal places in my spiritual journey. For one thing, musically, because I did learn at least enough gospel to fool some of the people some of the time. And that actually turned me from a good piano player into a professional musician, because what you access when you access gospel is both the chord language, as as it were, of popular music, but much more importantly, the rhythmic language. And you learn where what musicians call the pocket is. It's like this groove that as a white kid, growing up on classical music and popular music, I didn't really get it. And in gospel, you get it. And I came out of that able to play at a professional level in popular music, not in classical. More importantly, really, it was spiritually transformative. I was a a minority of one. I was the only white person in the service most Sundays. I got to see this incredibly resilient community. The black community in central New York is very small. I was a student at Cornell. I was benefiting from all the privilege of Cornell. These were folks who cleaned the bathrooms at Cornell, but got to see them with the incredible dignity, the incredible depth of faith and clarity about the gospel and about scripture. And it was one of the crucial turning points of my life.
0: How do you feel like that experience has stuck with you since then?
1: Oh my goodness. I mean, what you I said mean,
0: about human dignity is obviously yeah. a big factor.
1: It made the issues of justice, especially as they revolve around race in the United States, not just theoretical, but deeply personal, visceral emotional. I remember this woman who we called Mama Gray, an older woman, very heavy set woman who would just uh, sometimes in worship would just absolutely fall apart emotionally in expressions of lament and praise. They call it falling out in the black tradition. Once you've experienced that level of emotion and you realize it's rooted both in trauma and in resilience It's not just an expression of trauma. It's an expression of profound resilience in the face of oppression. And once you've felt that, and then to sing about it or make music, you have to access that. And so from that moment, kind of all of the tangled legacy of race and racism was not just theoretical for me. And even though it hasn't been something I've always written about directly or addressed directly, it's just been a through line of my life. How do we make sense of justice and injustice? And how do we do that fully in light of the gospel? Because the problem is we inherit these secularized ways of talking about justice and race, really, that give us very thin, I think, both analyses of what's actually going on and and don't give us very rich solutions. So I really have ever since wanted to kind of know how does this all hold together and how do Christians be part of real justice and real reconciliation in the world.
0: When you talk about these thin secular categories and that we've adopted those as Christians oftentimes, yeah. do you think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the accusations that seems to be floating around racial justice right now is that the church has kind of ceded that hmm. ground. Black Lives Matter is a secular movement right. for the most part. Uh, certainly at the core of yep. its leadership. And so one of the things you hear is, well, the church seated its ground there. Do you think that that secularization is one of the reasons that the church hasn't mm. engaged well there?
1: I don't think the church is the only actor in this that bears a certain kind of responsibility. When government got involved, which it had to, in redressing the legacy of institutionalized racism, you also bring with that tremendous amounts of power. And that was absolutely necessary because it was, after all, institutionalized power that created the system. But what happens is a lot of other interests get mixed into the Civil Rights Movement, which of course was a deeply Christian movement, though white Christians, especially the more conservative kind, were not engaged. So I think one very important thing to always remember is it really was because there was this tremendous fear of communism that animated the white evangelical world in the 1950s. And that allowed people to buy into the narrative that the Civil Rights Movement was basically a communist kind of outworking. And so there was this distancing that was extremely damaging, and we bear that legacy ever since, especially the evangelical side of the white church. But then the other thing that happened is that the civil rights movement itself became more secularized, and the black church also, I think, I mean, it's not my job to speak, certainly not on behalf of the black church, and to some extent not even in critique of the black church, but I think the fact that Black Lives Matter has arisen outside the black church reflects the fact that there was a kind of loss of prophetic clarity in the black church. And the black community had access to certain kinds of power, but then that led to a certain kind of overlooking of ongoing needs for prophetic confrontation. So there's a lot that goes into this, I think. Um, And it is also the case that it's just amazing how white Christians think that the issues are settled. (laughs) Like, we don't have racism anymore. We have a black president. What's the problem? It's not so much secular thin as this kind of sociologically thin understanding of sin. Sin embeds itself in structures and embeds itself in institutions. And institutions are just cultural patterns that last for a long time. And if sin is really sin, like if there's really something broken in the human story, it's not just going to be a matter of individual hearts. It's going to be a matter of these structures we inherit that we don't even see them. They're so powerful. They're so omnipresent. And white Christians, because they benefit from those structures. And when you benefit from something, it's almost always invisible to you. When I'm out on my bike riding and I have a tailwind, I never notice there's a tailwind. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I'm having a great day. (laughs) When there's a headwind, I'm like, oh, it's really windy. So when the structures benefit you, you don't even know they're there. And the inability of white Christians to recognize that those structures are there and that they continue to perpetuate oppression, I think that's our biggest problem, honestly. If we got fully, viscerally aware of that, then we could start worrying about, do we have deep enough language for this?
0: Well, and it seems like in your own life, even, you came awake to it by immersing yourselves in a world where you couldn't avoid it, you know? Yes. You couldn't deny it anymore. Uh, And that's an opportunity that evangelicals lack oftentimes, or limit themselves on because they don't participate in that community.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, African-Americans are somewhere around 15, 17% of the population. White Americans have been a little over 50% now, maybe 60%. Um, And (laughs) it's a little unfair for all of us. I don't know how all of us would go have that experience. It would overwhelm. Like I could have it because no other white people were opting into that church, but You know, if all my white friends from Cornell had come, it would have been a very different place. Most of us have the chance to have relationships across lines of race, but I think we also need to seek out kind of imaginative opportunities like read literature, follow some, what they call black Twitter, listen in, don't retweet, don't engage, just listen, just follow the links. And a lot of it will be very unfamiliar and perplexing. And I'm white. I don't understand a lot of it. I don't resonate with a lot of it. But you got to listen, <laughs> and we can do that in other ways than the total immersion. I think, and art is movies, books, novels, uh, music are are ways to quickly access the emotional content. White people have learned the way you handle conflict is you rationalize. You kind of step back. And you're like, well, let's be more rational here, and that can be a legitimate strategy. But it also can cut off actual experience, <laughs> and so. Attending to forms of expression that are just more visceral and letting your emotion kind of really participate in that, I think, is a very important beginning step rather than starting with, well, you know, what are the ideas here? What are the policy implications? What's right. the theory? Right. Well, we can get to that.
0: But first, let's feel it. That approach more, I think, more fully honors what it means to just be human. We know the world by more than our rational minds. We know because of
1: motion and imagination and the body even. We could have a whole conversation about this because we're learning, for one thing, how much cognition is embodied. Like thinking is embodied. We don't think with our brains. We think with our whole bodies. And this is mind-blowing, the research that's being done on this. And then we are learning that emotion is our main cognitive resource. Uh, Rosalind Picard, who directs a program in robotics and what she calls affective computing at the MIT Media Lab, affective in the sense of emotion, computers that can actually interact with and in a certain sense understand emotion. She says emotion is the cognitive resource we use to deal with complexity. So life is very complex. Reasoning is very slow. To reason your way through something is a lot of effort and very difficult. But in our day-to-day lives, we encounter all these complex situations and we have to integrate and respond very quickly. And the way we do that is with our emotions. Our emotions are what actually let us handle a really complicated conversation, encounter, experience. And so rather than reason being the way we think and emotion is the way we feel, emotion is actually the way we work our way through cognitively the complexity of being human. And it's embodied, right? Any deep emotion you feel in all these ways that are kind of out of your control in your body, in your core, and that's actually a way of of thinking.
0: about it in terms of trying to comprehend somebody else's experience. We're limited yes. oftentimes by that sort of rational sense. Yes. And so when someone shares their story, they're sharing something that they've experienced bodily. Yes. That we can't participate in necessarily.
1: In one sense that's right, except that we have these mirror neurons which actually activate the same parts of our brain as we behold another person's experience or hear it told. What gets activated in our brain is the same neurons that would actually activate our muscles if we were acting out that experience. And we do this from day one as infants. We all started out just mirroring. And our parents or whoever played that role, the responsible adults in our lives, they also kind of instinctively mirrored to us. So while it's true, I can't in the body experience what someone else experienced. Actually, neurologically, if I enter empathically into their story and, and observe them, I actually will experience this kind of deep neurological mirroring of what they experienced.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's like the amazing. way when, when people tell stories, the visual part of the brain lights up. Yes, you know, exactly. Similar kind of thing. This is a total side note. Do you ever listen to the podcast Radio Lab?
1: I only very rarely, I'm afraid.
0: So, so there was an episode recently with it was all about forestry, and it was specifically about the way they've recently come to rethink the way that a forest works. Mm-hmm. There's these there's these yes. funguses that are these teeny tiny, um, like in a basically in a in a handful of dirt. There's probably. 300 feet of this fungus yes, in it. Yes. And that it interconnects the whole forest. <laughs> and they're oh basically gosh. like the what they say on RadioLab is basically what the more they study this, the more they recognize that about for one thing about 80% of a tree's energy in making sugar gets spent on feeding these funguses. Whoa. The fungus is then delivering minerals to the tree. <laughs> that, that the roots can't absorb minerals, but the fungus can and break it down and give it to the tree. <laughs> and then the craziest thing that they get to towards the end is that if something bad happens on one end of the forest, if a fire happens or something like that, through this fungal network, Oh my God. the rest of the forest prepares for it, right? Oh my God. And so they're like, so is the... Are the trees thinking? You know, <laughs> and and it made me listening to it. It made me think about. Um, I've been reading this book of The Body Keeps the Score. You know, oh yeah, which, yeah. It's all about how trauma gets embodied, yes. and it basically yes. takes ten years to unravel it. Yes, and it just got me thinking that here's sort of another case of almost like an embodied knowledge built into mm. creation. Mm. Um, amazing, that's fascinating. Amazing. amazing. After college, Andy found himself moving to Boston.
1: I wanted to do a seminary degree, and I moved to Boston partly to do that, and partly following a girl who broke up with me three weeks after I arrived, which was actually a very good decision on her part. So I was in Boston for extremely mixed motives after college, but fell in with the campus ministry at Harvard called the Harvard Radcliffe Christian Fellowship and ended up joining their staff and thought I would just do it for a couple of years while I was in seminary. But I loved it so much that I stayed for 10 years.
0: What led you from campus ministry into more of the world of writing, editing, journalism?
1: Well, in a word, I think it was restlessness. So I was working with the undergraduates, which is still, in many ways, the most rewarding work I've done in my life, is just accompany college students through those four years. I loved that, but every year it kind of resets and it's like Groundhog Day. So like every fall, freshman year, you have all these conversations with someone who needs to break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend (laughs) from home. And after like seven years, you're like, oh yes, it's the breaking up conversation again. So I just was starting to feel restless. And there was this magazine called Regeneration that had been started by some young adult Christians in the DC area that was doing something different. It was trying to be more culturally serious and culturally engaged without being intellectually abstract. It was this great kind of sweet spot, I thought. And so I just started sending them little pieces and they published them without changing them sometimes, which is like crack cocaine for a writer to (laughs) have not be edited. It's actually not very healthy, but anyway, I was having fun and the original founders of it kind of had to move on to other things and they were thinking about closing it down and a few of us who had been involved said, well, let's not close it down yet. Let's take it over and have a shot. So I kind of fell into editing this magazine and found out I loved it. Editing is helping sharpen and bring forward other people's voices. I love doing that. I'd rather do that than write myself. (laughs) And I just loved the connections I was able to make. I was able to meet just amazing. People, you know, we were all young adults then. We were all very conscious of being Generation X, whatever the heck that was. I didn't. I don't actually think that's a very helpful phrase. I don't like all this generation talk, but there was this sense of who are we going to be? What's the posture of the church going to be to our culture? And could we articulate something different? And just gradually realized, this is the next thing to do. And so I wrapped up my work with University Christian Fellowship and started editing Regeneration full-time. We never figured out how to make it a viable business as a magazine. <laughs> Magazines and restaurants are the two worst business plans in the world, like structurally, so if anyone ever asks you to invest in either a magazine or a restaurant, run the other direction. And after five years, we didn't make it work and we did close it down. But the fruit actually of those five years in terms of friendship, we kind of said, we don't know if we can succeed, but let's make sure we succeed at being friends. And we have. Just yesterday, I was on the phone with my best friend for that time. He was the publisher of the magazine. Ten years plus later, we're still partners in all kinds of things. There's dozens of people like that that I got connected with through Regeneration.
0: And did that lead you to Christianity Today?
1: Yeah, more or less. I mean, uh, I think I met the CT folks as we were trying to figure out what are we doing with a magazine. They were very generous and offering us kind of insight, advice. And then I started writing a column for CT. And then after regeneration ended, my wife got a job. We moved. I was kind of unemployed for a year, which was not the worst thing because we had a big move in our family. But then CT asked me to join their team. And one way or another, I've been with CT for about 10 years.
0: In 2008, Andy published a book called Culture Making. The book was tremendously influential, and it challenged Christians to rethink our relationship to culture. He writes, quote, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside our churches. Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Why aren't we known as creators, people who dare to think and do something that has never been thought or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful? He goes on to say, If there's a constructive way forward for Christians in the midst of our broken but also beautiful cultures, it will require us to recover these two biblical postures of cultivation and creation. And that recovery will involve revisiting the biblical story itself, where we discover that God is more intimately and eternally concerned with culture than we have yet to come to believe.
1: So the vocabulary that really got me frustrated 10 plus years ago when I started working on that book was the vocabulary of engaging the culture, which sounds good, and it's certainly better than ignoring the culture. (laughs) But I felt like it was really inadequate because it treats the culture as something outside of you or something outside the church or outside the Christian community. It treats it as this sort of external object. In practice, what it meant to engage the culture was a lot of talking about it. I don't mind talking about culture. Culture is fascinating. We need to reflect on it critically. We need to analyze it. But ultimately culture is shaped by people who actually create and who invest and risk in some way. And there's not much risk in just philosophically analyzing something. So we've gotten way better about that, I think. And now we have examples. I mean, you know, LaCrae in music, let's say, someone who might have gone in a kind of very church-oriented direction and realized, no, I want to bring my full faith to a public kind of music-making. And I think we've seen some good examples of that. The structural problem we have, though, is that the airtime for the presentation and discussion of the gospel goes to pastors. Pastors are the ones who have a lot of airtime <laughs> to talk. And the problem is the life of a pastor is very insulated from the world of work out in the world. I mean, I, I love what pastors get to do. I've spent a lot of my life in various kinds of pastoral roles. I've never been the pastor of a church, and it's a very important role. But you can get quite blinkered and you forget what's happening and the layers of meaning and significance that are happening out in the world of work. So we have people who get a lot of airtime who just don't have a sympathetic imagination for what's actually happening in the world of culture and work.
0: I couldn't agree with that more. I'd say this as a pastor, that the more time I spend with Christians who are in the marketplace, the more I recognize, number one, how insulated we are. Mm. and oftentimes how unhelpful pastors are when they try to speak into that world. It's like, to some extent, the sort of cliche critiques of pastors, like, well, you just sit in your study all day and pray, and now you're going to tell me. To some extent, that's a fair critique, you know?
1: (laughs) It's not totally wrong.
0: Yeah. There's a quote in culture making where you say, the only way to change culture is to make more of it. When I was revisiting that book this week, one of the things that struck me with that is it actually makes a ton of sense of how progressives have advanced so much in the last decade and a half. They've made better artifacts. They've yeah. told better stories. They've made better art. They've captured the imagination on a much deeper level. For Christians to be in the place that we are now, do you feel like that's still the way forward? Given that Christians seem to have sort of lost ground in the public sphere mm. for the plausibility of orthodox evangelical faith. We lost a culture-making battle to get here, maybe. Is there a culture-making battle field for getting us out?
1: I think it's just axiomatic, which means it's fundamental, it's not going away, that culture changes when you add cultural artifacts, which eventually become institutionalized, they become patterns, deep patterns of life. That's not changing just because we have less access to certain kinds of cultural power or plausibility. Um, Now, what may happen, may be happening, uh, may have happened, is that we're going to find that on certain scales, it's harder to create It may well be that if you hold a kind of transparently orthodox view of human beings and human bodies and all these things that are so contested, that no one is ever going to greenlight your film. (laughs) And although I don't know that they ever would have, it's hard to assess how much the delta is here, but there's clearly some. And so, okay, well, you're not going to be able to be the showrunner on a network sitcom. That's probably true, especially if you're open about what you believe if you're a traditional Christian. That doesn't mean you can't create culture. There are so many scales and spheres where you can still create and all beneficial culture making. I think it's done locally. And so we get very preoccupied with the visible mediated forms of culture. And we say, oh, we're losing access, or are losing credibility. And those are very powerful. And it's not good that they're so homogenous in what they present of a vision of what human beings ought to be. There's still so much room for us to create, most of all in places of vulnerability you know, public schools are becoming difficult places to be Christians, but there are public schools in underserved neighborhoods all over the country that would open their doors wide for Christians to come and serve and be culturally creative in them. Not come and preach. That's not the role of the public school, but come and create culture. Absolutely. In places where the education system is not working. If we committed to do that, there would be so much scope of action. And no one else is doing it, by the way. Human rights campaign is not creating culture in public schools except on their one issue. But Christians could come with this comprehensive vision of what it is to be human and say, you know, we don't need to preach the gospel. We'll do that on Sunday and you're welcome to come. But we're here to figure out what's missing and actually create culture together. There's so much room for that. And that is the way forward no matter how much or how little cultural power you have. You think about the Roman Empire in the first century uh, AD, it's not a friendly place for this little sect called the Nazarenes or whatever the heck those people are who <laughs> eat blood and, you know, worship a dead Jewish person. Like, nobody even knows who they are. They have no cultural capital. One of the problems in the ancient world is who's going to care for your corpse when you die? And so there are these burial societies that that care for your burial, but they tend to be very class-specific and very exclusive. Well, the Christians just start caring for the bodies of their dead. You know, the final thing we want is for our bodies not to be defiled when we're completely powerless. And the Christians start creating these kind of quasi-fraternal societies that provide for that last moment of vulnerability. Nobody asked the Roman Empire's permission. You know, and <laughs> you didn't need permission. You just realized there's this kind of exclusion and marginalization that we can address. And it was culturally creative and beautiful. And then people are attracted to that.
0: Well, what I love about both of those examples is, you know, a lot of the culture talk ends up being kind of elitist and, you know, let's take over institutions and let's focus on artists and Hmm. filmmakers and, you know, whatever sort of grand scale things. And what you're talking about is let's create institutions that serve levels of society that are often, you use the word vulnerable, overlooked, you know, cast aside.
1: The, The other thing I would say is I don't want to neglect the elite Institutions, those are very powerful by definition. I mean, to be elite is to have disproportionate power. I mean, it's just almost tautological. Like, this is just the way it works. And there, the thing to aim at is not access to elite power. It's excellence. (laughs) I still think it's true. If you make genuinely excellent music, you can have the most backward views in the world from the point of view of the progressive world. But if your music is truly excellent, people will find their way to it. Same with storytelling, same with scholarship. It is probably true you have to be better than people who can get by with mediocrity because they fit into the system, but we shouldn't have been aiming for that anyway. And if you create genuine excellence, that still has cultural influence, certainly in the long run. It's very hard to predict cultural influence in the short run, ever. But in the long run, excellence really matters. And this is the other thing we haven't been very good at. We've settled for kind of cheap stuff and we kind of deserved to lose. Um, because we were not creating enough genuine excellence.
0: All right. Much more to come from my conversation with Andy next week, so don't miss it. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute and leave us a review or share a tweet with your friends or post it on Facebook. And make sure and check out our archives. Help us spread the word. Check out our other shows. Every little bit helps. Our show today was produced and edited by me. Additional editing by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Special thanks to Lachlan Coffee and Scott Slusher. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Today's soundtrack was by Dan Phelps and Roman Candle. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Chris Bennett designed our logos. Uh, Remember, if you like what we're doing at Harbor Media, please consider visiting harbormedia.com slash donate and chipping in a few bucks. And once again, special thanks to Dan Darling and Elizabeth Graham for helping us make these recordings. We'll see you next week with more Andy Crouch.
1: Just the other night, the clocks were moving awful, so I heard